Listener Production. This is Global Truths with Dr. Keith Souter. Now, if you're an avid listener, you're probably thinking, wow, Kate's voice has gotten deep. But no, unfortunately, Kate has called in sick for this episode and I'll be filling in for her. My name is Matt Dwyer. I produce everything behind the scenes for this series, which if you're hungry for information on global issues, it's kind of like a metaphorical snack. Each week we focus on something that's going on in the world and we break it down for people like me. And there's no better man for the job than Dr. Keith Suter. Keith, you've been doing this for forever. You're an expert in foreign politics and affairs. You've got three PhDs and I reckon you're a little bit of a rock star in the global political world. Thanks very much indeed. (laughs) So in this episode, Keith, we're shifting our focus back to China. And I feel like we've been ping-ponging between China and America for a little while now. It's kind of like they've taken the spotlight on global issues for a little bit. Uh, But we're talking about if there is an inevitable rise for China's power and what the warning signs are that we have to look out for. So I've um, been talking a lot about China, and this is an article that I wrote some time ago, which is in a sense serving as encouraging people to think about the unthinkable. I do scenario planning as a management activity. So with scenario planning, you try to get your client to think about the signs that have changed that might be out there. It's just the client is not seeing it. Now, if you look at the debate over China, the assumption is always what happens when China becomes number one. The Chinese government will say that'll be in the year 2049, which is the 100th anniversary of the Chinese Revolution. And in this series, we've dealt with the question of whether there will be an inevitable war between China and the United States, in the same way that with the rise of Germany, there's a war between Germany and England. So there is always this assumption that that China is always just going to be getting better. It's inevitable that it'll be the, the number one country. What I'm doing is to suggest, well, there may be some warning signs that China may not be destined to rise so easily to the top and to be the number one country. And I've I've suggested there are a total of 10 warning signs that people have to be on the lookout for. So the first is that no boom in history has continued indefinitely. So we have more ex-empires in the world now than are currently flourishing civilizations. In other words, that Yes, uh, it's almost like watching children grow up. They seem to be growing so quickly and then they reach their teenage period and suddenly they stop growing. The same thing often happens with countries, that countries are growing rapidly, but then suddenly they just seem to run out of steam. They just settle down at a, a particular level. So there is a general lesson from history that no boom in history has continued indefinitely. A second lesson from history is that China's economy is just a bubble and all bubbles burst. For example, in the 17th century, the superpower of its day was the Netherlands. So the Netherlands acquired lots of empire around the world, including in our region, Indonesia, of course. And of course, parts of Australia could very easily have been part of the Dutch empire Mm -hmm. if they'd been more enthusiastic about collecting territory. How do you show that you are wealthy if you're a Dutch person in the 17th century? You bought tulips, the flowers. You bought tulips. And so you had what was called the tulip bubble. And eventually that bubble burst. Other types of bubbles that have come along have been railway bubbles, canal building bubbles. A number of us can remember the time of the, of the tech bubble, which occurred 20 years ago. 
and that bubble just burst. So the flowers were the biggest commodity. That they they was the rich. Well, if you're in the 17th century, Mercedes were not producing cars, right? And there are no luxury pencils or whatever that you, you know, from Mont Blanc. <laughs> yeah. So you, you're rather limited in what you could actually spend your money on. And so tulips had that role. Yeah, so uh, they, that's what showed you if you're rich or not. That's right. But that bubble burst. And that's, of course, a fear for China, that uh, China could simply uh, have a boom, which is a bubble, which then bursts. Mm -hmm. A a third problem is that the Chinese government may not be able to coordinate all the parts of the growth machine. And so it just simply melts down through too much activity in too many places. The coronavirus is a good example of this. China did not want to have the coronavirus um, damaged the world. Mm -hmm. Um, Even though China's got on top of it, most of its customers have not. And so for the first time since the revolution, or sorry, since the the, um, economic revolution that began 40 years ago, China is not predicting what its figure of economic growth will be. So the coronavirus has been a disaster. Now, we assume the coronavirus has come about through the trading of live animals, which is now banned in Australia, but you would be able to buy live animals and you take them home and slaughter them at home for your own herbal mixtures or for food, etc. Now, the Chinese government would say, we have banned that. We do not approve of the sale of live animals. Fine, but you're a long way away from being able to stop that going on in all the local markets. Yeah. And clearly in Wuhan, there were people who just bribed the local police and they just went ahead and sold these live animals. Mm. So you had the Chinese government, which seems to be all-powerful, but in fact it doesn't have that much power when it comes to the local level. In fact, there's an old saying in China that the mountains are high and the emperor is far away. So you just carry on. Keep going. Keep going. You don't worry. So that's a a third problem. The Chinese government may not be able to coordinate all the parts of the growth machine. Now, can I ask with that, will China have to keep focusing on certain areas or industries to maintain a sort of global healthy relationship or obviously they're doing too much they've got their hands in too many too many pies this has been one of the secrets of the, the rapid chinese growth if you think back to when japan began its economic revolution after world war ii they made cheap products there was always this uh, feeling that if you were in the west and you bought chinese cameras or whatever they're always a bit lower quality they were cheap and nasty and then China moved, uh, sorry, they moved, Japan moved into the luxury market, uh, producing upmarket goods. And so now, of course, Japanese equipment is seen as, as top of the market, mm. top of the range. China is very interesting. They went down both routes simultaneously. In other words, yes, they made cheap plasticky stuff, but at the same time, they went into the high-end items as well. A lot of luxury clothing, for example, that you see people wear with fancy labels from France. But in fact, the dresses themselves were made in China. Yeah, right. So the Chinese have done a very interesting way of, you know, they're, they're covering what they would say is covering the waterfront. In other words, going for a very broad approach. That's been why their economic growth has been so outstanding, that they've gone down through so many parallel paths at the same time. And it's really paid off. But the worry, of course, is that they might end up with not being able to coordinate all these bits and pieces. That mm. is the risk now for China. There is a fourth problem, which is a bit of a technical issue here. It deals with the fact that the Chinese currency is undervalued, which means that it's uh, cheaper to buy Chinese goods than, say, a lot of Western goods because the Chinese government are keeping the 
uh, Chinese currency at a very low value. So the Americans are pressing China to revalue its currency to make all Chinese goods far more expensive on the global market. Now, the Americans, I think, have forgotten their history. The Japanese uh, and Chinese have not forgotten Japanese history. So again, you go back to post-war period in Japan. The Japanese are now recovering very quickly, and they had an undervalued currency. And the Americans insisted that they revalue their currency to make it more expensive. So it made it harder for an Australian to buy a Japanese good, mm. but it made it cheaper for the Japanese to be able to buy an Australian good. So with the revaluation of the Japanese currency, which took place in the 1980s, we ended up with this bizarre situation where Japan became the most powerful economy in the world. If you could have sold the land under the Imperial Palace in Tokyo, you could have bought Canada that year. Wow. I was in uh, downtown Los Angeles in 1988, and a third of downtown LA had been bought by the Japanese. They just simply had so much wow. money because the currency had been revalued. Now, the Americans are saying to the China, you've got to revalue your currency, mm. which will make it more expensive for people to buy Chinese goods, but, of course, it will mean you'll be able to buy more Western goods. But that will mean that for a few years, China will be able to buy up the rest of the world. Now, the problem in Japan is the Japanese, of course, having had this huge spending spree, ended up plunging themselves into this recession from which they've never emerged. Japan continues to have a, a bit of a recessed economy. So they spent too much after their after their currency was revalued Valued, and worth exactly. more. They just they spent way too much money. Yeah, they just blew it. It's as though they'd won lotto. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good way to put it. <laughs> and the and the Chinese are well aware of that risk, and the Chinese are resisting the American pressure to revalue the currency. So that that but if the Chinese were ever forced into revaluing it then um, what will happen is the Chinese goods will become far more expensive and it may well be that we would be able to import cheaper goods from, say, Vietnam and India. So that's another problem for the Chinese. And, and then the fifth one is that China's booming economy is coming at great environmental cost. So you have all the problems of environmental uh, degradation uh, that's going on. So of the world's 20 most polluted cities, 16 are in China. Mm. So it's, it's a terrible situation with the environment. Now, of course, as China becomes richer, a middle class comes along and the middle class is saying, we don't want to have that pollution. Get it out. Send all those dirty jobs into Vietnam or ultimately into Africa. Mm. And so that will bring about a change in itself. But it may mean that in the meantime, China's economy, uh, sorry, China's environment will be badly damaged by all of this. The, the obvious one is the growing what's called desertification. In other words, they're losing their topsoil. Uh, so there is a real problem there as well. So in what way will this come back to haunt them? Well, because they'll have a wrecked environment. You know, that if they're running out of good quality water under the North China Plain, for example, uh, that they will have water shortages. They have built the world's largest dam uh, on the Yangtze River which is now containing so much water behind it. This is the southern part of the country. 
It now got so much water behind that wall that it has pushed the earth off its axis by one inch. The pressure on that dam wall. But what but the problem is that the dam is built near an earthquake fault. So what happens if there is an earthquake mm. and the dam collapses and you'll have a water a wall of water flushing down through the Yangtze? You're listening to Global Truth with Dr. Keith Souter. We've been talking about whether China's rise of power is inevitable and the 10 warning signs that we're looking out for. And Keith, these are all very big signs that are going to affect the entire globe. That's right. Oh, absolutely. And the reason for that, of course, is that China is now plugged in so much to the rest of the globe. If you go back to 1949, you had the Chinese Revolution and China just enclosed its own economy. It had very few links with the outside world. For many years, it didn't even have a seat at the United Nations. The Americans kept uh, mainland China out of the UN and said that Taiwan, this little island off the Chinese coast, that was the true representative of China. And so China was excluded uh, during the years of Chairman Mao. And that probably suited Chairman Mao because it meant that he could concentrate on developing socialism in one country. He was a disaster. He's one of the worst mass murderers in history, but he did modernise some of the country. He then died in 1976. In 1979, after a period of instability, we end up with the reforms uh, created by the then leader, Deng Xiaoping. And Deng Xiaoping, who had spent early years in Singapore and seen how Singapore had developed. So he was very interested and although he used the phrase that it's going to be communism, it's going to have Chinese characteristics. Mm. Very pragmatic way of reorganising the Chinese economy. So nominally, China is still a communist country, but in reality, there's a high lot of, of market reforms that are going on there, and they're encouraging entrepreneurial activities, which has meant that China is now the workshop of the world. We used to use that expression for Britain. Remember, Britain used to uh, run a third of the world. Yeah had an empire in which the sun never set. And so you, you, you therefore had Britain as the workshop of the world. It lost that status. As remember I said that all countries rise and fall, and now it is China mm. that is the, the, the workshop of the world, producing so much material for the rest of the world. So what I've done is, is to say, yes, I think probably China will continue to grow, but nonetheless it's not, nothing is inevitable in world politics. You've always got to be thinking about the unthinkable, mm. what could happen. And so I've listed out a total of 10 warning signs that we ought to be paying attention to. Now, we've listed already the first five. I might just say the number the sixth is the risk of political instability. When the belly is full, the brain starts to think. In other words, the military or a fascist dictatorship can run a poor peasant society where people are anxious to just get enough food to survive the day. But once you get a middle class developing, then a middle class will want to have a say in how the country is being governed. In psychology terms, this is called Maslow's hierarchy of needs, that um, you can't teach a class of students who are hungry or who want to go to the toilet. It's those basic needs that are going to be taken care of. But then once people have had enough to eat and they're feeling relaxed, then the brain starts to think. And that is the risk in politics. 
that if you want to keep control over a country, then you've got to keep the country poor. But if you allow a middle class to develop, the middle class want to have a, a say in how the country is being governed. So if you look at our immediate region, Taiwan, South Korea, the Philippines, Indonesia, they used to be fascist dictatorships, but now they're all flourishing democracies because they've got a middle class. And the problem for China is that as China gets richer, so you'll end up with people saying, we want to have a say in how the country is being governed. Now, I have Chinese students who say that will never happen because the Chinese have in their memory the recollection of what happened with political instability and the way that you get centuries of humiliation as people then invade your country. Uh, but it is interesting that India, which is the next big great power to come along, is already a democracy. Mm. It doesn't have to worry about that transition, uh, whereas China may need to do so. The Soviet Union, by contrast, could not make that transition. Gorbachev tried to introduce a few reforms and the whole thing fell apart. So there is a risk then for China that as it gets richer, a middle class will become more politically active and there will be instability. So that's the, a warning sign that I say for number six. Number seven is the fact that China may grow old before it grows rich. In other words, that China with the world's largest population, at, at the moment anyway, has tried to restrict the growth of the population by what was called the one-child mm. policy. So this began under Chairman Mao. This has meant there's a distortion because parents were allowed to have one child and parents prefer to have boys. So if a girl was born, they killed the girl. And in isolated rural areas, they just simply threw her away. It's heartbreaking. The result is when you look at Western China, there is a shortage of women. If you mm. want a business activity, find out how to import women into China because there are a lot of husbands who will be willing to, uh, <laughs> to use your services supplying them. The problem now for China is they're running out of young people. So they've got all these sport little what are called young emperors that are going around. You know, these are, are boys who've never had children to play with. They've never had to deal with the politics within the family of having younger or older brothers and sisters, et cetera. So that's a bit of social dysfunction in its own mm. right. And then on top of that, there is the fact they are running out of workers. So that is another risk that, as they say, China may grow old before it grows rich because they're running out of people. Number eight is that China could turn its back on Western materialism. In other words, within Chinese culture, there is a deep sense of spirituality and the Chinese may well decide we want to go back to those traditional ideas when um, people would concentrate on poetry and drawing, etc., rather than going down this path of materialism. We can see what it's doing in the United States with suicide, drug problems, etc. We just don't want to go down that path of materialism. Money doesn't necessarily buy happiness, it buys headaches. And so the Chinese would just simply rebel and say, we don't want this path of materialism. If they, if they stop that and they stop the, the export of materialistic goods, how does that affect Australia? Well, it means that they'll no longer be such a big importer of our raw materials. Remember, China is our number one customer, mm. the export of raw materials. One third of everything we export goes to China. So we need to have the Chinese importing raw materials in order to make manufactured goods to sell to the United States yep. and other countries. If the Chinese say, well, no, we're sick of all of this now, we've got pollution from all this industrialization, 
We've got citizens who are not that concerned about making more money. Well, that, that'll obviously have a knock-on effect for Australia because we need to have the Chinese being very concerned mm. about importing our material. So that would certainly be another threat to Australia's security. I, I keep saying to Australian businesses, don't have all your eggs in the China basket. Look, we have made so much money out of China. It's been so easy to do so. And so we've got lazy. And the time of greatest danger comes at the time of greatest success. You become complacent. And so we have made so much money out of China, we don't worry about looking for alternative markets. My view is that we should be looking for alternative markets in India, Japan, South Korea, and Indonesia. You add all those countries together, and that market area is the size equivalent to China. But China is a lot easier to deal with. That's why we continue to sell there. But we're just getting lazy. We've got to be thinking about having alternative customers. Uh, number nine, uh, as a warning sign, the Chinese military could embark upon foreign adventures, starting with the rebellious Taiwan, and so bankrupt the country. And again, if you look back at the history of 500 years of European empires and the 500 years in which we white folk have dominated the world, you'll notice there is a pattern that every country starts out as a small trading country, then it develops overseas trade links, then it develops a military to protect those trade links, then it uh, gets involved in foreign wars, and then ends up bankrupting itself. I've added in my own book on this subject, I've added the footnote that you then end up as a tourist attraction. Why else, for example, would you bother to visit the Netherlands today? In the 17th century, it was the world's great power. It controlled New York, for example, New Amsterdam. It controlled Indonesia, controlled parts of Australia. Now it's just a tourist attraction. And so you get this rise and fall of countries. Now, will the Chinese military also go for foreign adventures, end up getting involved in foreign wars and end up bankrupting the country, as we've seen with the Netherlands, Spain, Portugal, Great Britain, and possibly now the United States? Mm. That's your cycle. And then finally, there is the warning that China has done very well out of the United States as a prime market for exports. But if the United States continues to go down, then in fact, it could drag down China as well. China needs flourishing customers. Even though it's got over its own coronavirus, there are other countries that have not. And Europe is now moving back into recession mm. with the upsurge of coronavirus cases. The United States is in a terrible mess as well. So China is reliant upon the rest of the world. The rest of the world is reliant upon China, but China is reliant upon the rest of the world as well. It's a symbiotic relationship. And if the rest of the world gets into trouble, China goes down as well. So for me, the bottom line is that China may become the world's dominant country by 2049, or it may not. We need to be ready to think about the unthinkable. Thank you so much, Dr. Keith. That was incredibly interesting. Thank you. Global Truths was presented by Dr. Keith Suter and me, Kate Mack. Produced by Matt Dwyer. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. Listener.